Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the show. So I think it became a bit of a running joke, a dark joke, that the Tories could probably just kill the second born and they would still retain a lead over Labour. Uh, after every single disaster that we've gone through, again, a general Twitter joke has been Tories plus five. We've gone through one of the worst handlings of COVID-19 on earth with a catastrophic Uh, death toll, one of the worst death tolls, of course, in the world, up to 150,000 people who died. Uh, We've had cuts to universal credit. We have had various scandals like Matt Hancock, for example. We had a fuel crisis where, of course, commuters were uh, were queuing up to fill up their petrol stations. We had emptying uh, supermarket shelves. Uh, And yet we and the cost of living crisis, for that matter, Uh, We've already gone through the longest squeeze in living standards since the Napoleonic War. Uh, But again, people's living standards squeezed. And yet the Tories have retained a sustained polling lead over the Labour Party until potentially now. I say potentially now because what matters is the polling average uh, and the polling average has still had the Tories ahead. But we've now had polls which show the Tories who are now behind Labour, including up to six points behind. Let's have a look quickly, actually, at some of the, some of the polling which has come out. So we've got one poll uh, which shows Labour one point ahead uh, and another poll that shows Labour six points ahead. Now, again, given that the Tories have had very sustained uh, polling leads, here we go. So that would still show, by the way, I mean, this is, just shows how first past the post works. That would still have the Tories ahead on seats, even if Labour on 37 and the Tories on 36. Um, and let's have a look at the other poll. Yeah, that's Labour on 40%. Bear in mind, 40% is what Labour got in 2017, though, of course, the Tories got higher. Uh, and that would actually show Labour ahead. But even with a six-point lead, by the way, again, and this just shows how the electoral geography benefits the Tories, that would still be a hung parliament with Labour as the biggest single party. They would be able to form a government in those circumstances, though they would have to rely on the other party. So even with a six-point lead, they're not even home and dry um, in those uh, circumstances. But nonetheless, that is a polling lead. Let's have a look at a couple of the front pages. Now, Jennifer Arcuri, here she is, how Johnson pledged help for my business to win my love, allegedly had an affair of course, with Jennifer Akuri, and she has now, she suggested that that came, and we'll talk about this, uh, when he was mayor of London, uh, that he used the office uh, in, 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 in attempt to, to support her business interests uh, to win her love. Have a look at another uh, story, which is about Jacob Rees-Mogg. Did he break rules by not declaring £6 million of cheap loans. He is the first Tory cabinet minister to be dragged into this, and we should keep calling it, of course, corruption scandal. That's what we're talking about. Now, we've got some brilliant guests. I'm not going to speak much longer. But what is interesting, of course, is with the Owen Patterson affair, uh, where you had a Tory backbencher, uh, of course, who was found to have broken the rules, and then the government intervened on his behalf to change the rules to defend him in the end, of course, the backlash was so huge that he ended up resigning uh, as a member of parliament, which will trigger uh, a coming by-election. But that's now led to a focus on so-called second jobs that MPs have. Uh, Now, in the case of the Conservatives, that's a quarter of Tory MPs have so-called second jobs. It should be noted with the Labour Party, it's only three. Um, And when we talk about these second jobs, as one example is a a practicing doctor who's a who's a Labour MP, which is very different from the jobs 
that the Conservatives have had. We're not going to let Labour off the hook in the show, by the way, in case you think we are. But it is there is a very clear distinction. There's a big difference between the two. Now, I wrote a column last week about this so-called second jobs framing because I think one of the problems with it is it suggests being an MP is a job. It isn't. It's a service. It's a public service. It was actually the case that MPs weren't paid uh, originally for being MPs, which was very bad because that meant that people of means could afford to stand, but working class people could not. So Labour was at the forefront uh, of arguing that MPs should be paid. And in 1911, the first allowance was introduced. But now, if you're an MP, a backbench MP, that puts you in the top 5% by earners. Um, and also uh, about three times the median wage. So let's not pretend that being an MP leaves you leaves you hard up. What happens a lot with particularly Tory MPs is they rub shoulders with the great and the good, whose salaries have exploded over the years, thanks partly to their Tory policies. Tory MPs resent that. They rub shoulders with people who can shell out uh, to send all their kids to private schools without even blinking, just pocket money, essentially. And on a parliamentary salary, you can't do that uh, in the same way at all. So that's where you get this disparity. As pr the private sector salaries have exploded, uh, MPs who see themselves as similar middle class professions think, why don't we have a slice of that? And that's partly drove the expenses scandal. And it's also driven this as well. But we should stop talking about second jobs because it's a public service that MPs should be doing. Now, we'll be talking about this um, and those specific scandals uh, with two guests. Just again... Uh, housekeeping do if you're watching live click on the youtube link and press like uh, which just helps the algorithm uh, more people watch it afterwards and press subscribe uh, our documentary finally is coming out tomorrow uh, which we've talked about a lot about property developers waging warm working class communities uh, in south london uh, is where we focus we've passed the mic to working class people who don't normally get a voice you make that possible on patreon.com forward slash owen jones 84 we've got lots of more documentaries uh, in the pipeline, uh, but you can also use Super Chat to support the show as well. Uh, on YouTube, you can ask questions to the guests. I will read out everybody um, at the end. And also, we've got the podcast, so do download that as well. That's enough for me. I'm now going to bring in the two brilliant guests, Adam Bienkov, who is a fantastic journalist and has been in the lobby, the political lobby, reporting on politics for a very long time and is now at Byline News amongst very uh, many of the projects. And also Ellie Mayer-Hagen, course my good friend and also the director of the think tank uh, class uh, and also a writer and an author she's got a book coming out soon hurry up ellie with that um not hypocrite yeah i know i just realized that's backfired uh, how are you babe good yeah thanks good i was just saying uh i literally just got back from swimming so you keep doing this you have your little 7am icy swims which i have to say ellie sounds essentially one of the worst things imaginable to me well yeah they are an acquired taste but i have acquired the taste so yeah yeah no during the day like when i warm up and i go out and about and i see like a pond or a body of water i sort of think i can't really believe i was in that earlier that just seems insane but lovely to have hypothermia early on a sunday morning right so before we uh i just we start talking about this. Let's have a clip first from the deputy leader of the Labour Party, Angela Rayner, who was fielded by Labour today on The Marshall. Let's see what she had to say about all of this. Would you completely ban all outside work or would you allow some work? Because there are some of your colleagues are doctors and nurses and so forth. They would presumably be allowed to carry on doing that. So what kind of work do you absolutely ban? What don't you ban? Well, we said that we'd set up a commission for integrity and ethics to make sure that it's fit for purpose so that we're always working in the interest of the British public. We said that we'd ban second jobs, but there will be some uh, areas like where we've got an A&E doctor that's practising at the moment so that they can continue to do that because they need that for their professional practice. And actually, it's good public service. But what we won't have is people, you know, getting loans like we've seen from Jacobs Rees Mogg, where he's got six million on, an, on a really small interest rate, where we've seen, you know, Grant Shapps, who's basically been setting up his own lobbyist uh, company within his own department to lobby his own government okay. for his own personal means. Sleaze after sleaze, corruption after corruption. We've got to end this now because it really undermines public trust and confidence in, well, in, in our government. And it was John Major's you, government, the Conservative government, that brought in the Nolan right. principles, and this government is completely undermining them. 
No, actually, Adam, you actually criticised Andrew Marr this morning because, let me bring this up, um, Andrew Marr glossing over the Jennifer Curie story just now is salacious and nothing really substantial. It's a first-person account of how Boris Johnson used his office to financially benefit his lover against official advice. It's corruption. Now, Adam, you actually covered um, your beat with London for a very long time and Boris Johnson. You're basically a Boris Johnson specialist. Uh, <laughs> Uh, what qualifications do I have? Well, you are. It's true. So let's just talk about that. Talk about the, Tell us about the Jennifer R. Curie story and why it matters. Well, I mean, it was, yes, it was interesting this morning on the, on the Andrew Marr show. Um, this was raised in the newspaper review about the Observer's story on Jennifer R. Curie. It's a first-hand account from, from her about how she was promised by the then Mayor of London that he would benefit her company um, uh, as part of their relationship. So that, that's a... That's a pretty clear indication of corruption. It should be investigated. Um, but he br brushed over it and saying, oh, this is just salacious gossip about a, an affair between Boris Johnson and, and, Ms. and Jennifer Curie, which, which I don't think is. I think it's, this is about how he misused his, allegedly misused his office while he was mayor of London um, and potentially once he became prime minister as well. And I think this story that, that is one example of many stories over the last couple of years of... Um, Boris Johnson and his ministers and MPs misusing their office and that just hasn't got the attention from the press, from the BBC and others that it should, probably should have done. Now, on this, Ellie, I mean, let's just have a quick look. I mean, I've, I already showed the polling, which did actually suggest that, obviously, the Tories have been hit. It varies. YouGov, I didn't mention, they had the Labour and the Tories uh, tied. YouGov's generally been... Uh, harder uh, well some of the worst polling for labor but nonetheless all the polling shows consistently a shift but nonetheless if we look at best pm which of boris johnson and keir starmer is doing a better job overall at the moment boris johnson minus two it's gone down 41 percent. keir starmer 27 percent. we will talk about labor later but in terms of the tories at the moment elliot how much do you think this is cutting through in the sense that when you vote conservative, not you, just to clarify, she didn't vote conservative. Um, I don't think people were doing it under any illusions uh, that Boris Johnson was uh, somehow a paragon of integrity. So is it priced in or is this really cutting through? What do you think? Um, so the first thing to say is that one of the rules of um, sort of opinion polls is that in this country, a party has never won when the leader is behind in the leadership ratings, even if the party is ahead in the polls. And the person who came up with that rule is Deborah Matteson, who currently works for Keir Starmer. So actually, the um, prime minister ratings are more worrying than you might think for Labour. Um, in terms, I mean, you asked me a lot of questions there. Where shall I start? Which, which bit do you want me to start with? Well, start with how much is it priced in, do you think, with Boris Johnson being seen as obviously an unsavoury personal character? Or do you think this is actually cutting through and causing severe damage to the Tories? So I did some research um, up at, running up to the 2019 general election and after the election. And what we found was that people before the election was sort of appalled by having to choose between Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson, neither of whom they liked. Uh, by the way, I'm just reiter before I get any hate about that, I'm just reiterating what I heard in those focus groups. I'm not sharing my own opinion. Um, <clears throat> so it definitely wasn't coming from, as far as I could see, that people really liked Boris Johnson. I think for most people, it was just the, the get Brexit done slogan really did work for them. And then I started to notice a bit of an uptick in the way that people thought Boris Johnson, how, how they felt about Boris Johnson after the election, because people generally like winners. <clears throat> you saw the same thing in 2017 when Jeremy Corbyn surprised everybody that people were like, oh, I didn't like him, but maybe he's all right. Because people do just like winners. They just, uh, there's just a thing that happens. <clears throat> I, but I don't think that was particularly sticky. And actually, Boris Johnson is fairly unpopular. And I think the danger that we have is uh, when people are basically appalled by the, the politics that they see where there's just no attractive choices, that doesn't make them think, right, well, I'm going to go out and sort of form a radical movement to reshape this country. Uh, it makes them cynical and it makes them sort of check out of politics. And usually that really helps, ironically, charlatans like Boris Johnson um, rather than the left. Uh, so... 
Yeah, so I think that's kind of uh, where it, we, we've been at with this. And in terms of um, Keir Starmer and Labour, I just think that, you know, I watched the full Angela Rayner interview today, and I'm sure we'll talk a bit more about it. But I just think that, yet again, it, it sort of brought up this recurring issue with Keir Starmer, which is like, sure, jo Boris Johnson, people don't like him, but people aren't really buying what Keir's selling, partly because they don't really know what that is. Um, and I think, so I think while the lead, I think is real, the question is whether it can be built upon and whether it can be a sustained lead. And I don't think it will be unless things change, Labour changes the way it's doing things. So we'll come on to Labour shortly. We're going to focus just a bit more still on, on the Tories. Um, and actually, Boris Johnson is not a popular man should be very clear, even though we just did the matchup between him and Keir Starmer. Boris Johnson's 51% disapprove of how he's doing, 30% approve of how he's doing. So what do you think, Adam? Because again, you've, you know, similar question as I put to Ellie, you've, you've analysed this guy for a very long time. You've seen how yeah. slippery he is, how he essentially doesn't conform to the usual rules of politicians. I mean, he's a guy who's been sacked twice for lying. You know, the normal scandals which would destroy the politicians haven't destroyed them. So how much is this sticking, do you think? Well, I think, you know, you wouldn't have lost much. You know, it's, if you bet on Boris Johnson making comeback, you're going to, you're going to win the bet normally. Um, but actually, I mean, looking at these poll numbers, I mean, historically, the, it doesn't look great for Labour. I mean, if you look at Jeremy Corbyn, they, they, Labour had long sustained periods of poll leads um, over Theresa May um, and Ed Miliband as well had even longer periods of sustained poll leads, sometimes much bigger than what we're seeing from Labour now. And ultimately, it didn't lead to a landslide victory for Labour in the polls because ultimately people would prefer to have David Cameron and prefer to have Boris Johnson than they did to Ed Miliband and Jeremy Corbyn. And I think the risk for Labour is that we probably see a similar result at the, or possibly see a similar result at the next election. Um, where this is dangerous for the government is that it does seem to be sort of going beyond the sort of headline voting intentions to actually damaging Boris Johnson's personal brand. And where I think it is particularly dangerous for Boris Johnson is that a lot of these scandals, whereas in the past with David Cameron, he was hit by the expenses uh, crisis, that didn't sort of directly hit him personally. Whereas a lot of these scandals and allegations of corruption actually do directly affect Boris Johnson. They go to the heart of his character. And so I think there is an opportunity for Labour to sort of set out an alternative and to convince the public that Keir Starmer would make a better prime minister. So far, looking at the polls, it doesn't look like they've actually achieved that so far. Um, the opinion a poll for The Observer this weekend shows that uh, the public still very narrowly believe that Boris Johnson would make a better prime minister than Keir Starmer, even after the last few weeks that we've seen. So I think there is a, there's a massive hill for Labour to climb, you know, even if they do have a long period of sustained leading the polls, it doesn't necessarily transfer to Keir Starmer becoming Prime Minister. I think the, the, the risk for the government is more about what this does to the internal politics of the Conservative Party. Uh, if there is a sustained lead for Labour, if Boris Johnson's uh, approval ratings continue to tank, then I think there is a very good chance that Conservative MPs will turn on, on Boris Johnson um, because their, their relationship with Boris Johnson and Conservative MPs has always been quite transactional. Uh, they believe he's a winner. That's why they backed him in 2019, despite having serious doubts about his leadership. So if that changes, and if there's a long period where the Conservatives are doing badly, Conservative MPs keep on getting the tranches of emails from constituents abusing them, as they have done in the last couple of weeks. Um, if Boris Johnson brings in new legislation restricting second jobs for MPs, which we know would adversely affect about a quarter of Conservative MPs, if all of those things happen, which there's a good chance at least some of them will, then we could see things starting to go south for Boris Johnson in terms of his leadership of the party. But I think that's the bigger threat to the Conservatives rather than sort of Labour sort of storming to a landslide victory in the next election. And on that, actually, just to bring up some polling evidence to back up what Adam was just saying, it is true that, if, for example, if we look at uh, Boris Johnson's personal prime minister uh, stereo popularity, if you compare him to other previous leaders, prime ministers, Blair, Brown, Cameron and May, actually, he's never been as popular as they were when they were popular. So at the height of their popularity. Uh, and he is on he is unpopular, according to deeply unpopular uh, compared according to the polling in its in its own right. But equally, 
the pre-2015 polling, now Adam says uh, that Labour have been ahead often in midterms. That is actually what you'd expect people forget. Yes. In midterms, the opposition is ahead in, a, in polling. Michael Foote was often ahead in polling for, for, for long sustained periods, mm-hmm. including very big poll leads, by the way, ended in the 1983 landslide defeat. Neil Kinnock was ahead, uh, again, often dramatically ahead, lost both in 1987 and in 1992. If we look at pre-2015 polling under Ed Miliband, we've got a graph up for those listening to the podcast, and it shows that Labour was almost always ahead under Ed Miliband before the 2015 election. The polling methodology was changed after that election, so there's that caveat. But nonetheless, it doesn't account for for all of that lead. And before the 2019 election, between 2017 and 2019, Labour was ahead, not very much, but it was ahead for the, for the months after the 2017 election. And then they were roughly tied. I mean, it was for almost that entire parliament, Labour and the Tories were tied. Their polling collapsed, both of them at the same time, around the Brexit deadline that didn't happen at the end of March. Then the Tories recouped their support and Labour didn't to the same degree. That's what happened. But well, what that shows is polling, Labour... Uh, is expected to be ahead. So actually you get all, a lot of people go, yeah, Labour ahead. And then, you know, all the people who doubted Star have been disproven wrong when actually historically this is terrible polling. So Ellie, I mean, on that, what what do you think in terms of what Labour at the moment, in terms of their messaging, not always the clearest messaging, even though the grown up was back in the room, but uh, what, do you, what do you think of their messaging? What are the kind of key, like, you know, because you are getting the, one rule for politicians, one rule for everybody else, which is actually good messaging, isn't it? I mean, that that is being used. But just as a caveat, in uh, in the Times, I'll just put this to you, Ellie, because you're very good at framing and communications and what cuts through. Adam, 37, a sales manager, identified a theme that Labour sought to exploit. It's one rule for politicians and one rule for the rest of us. Do as I say, not as I do. They're completely out of touch from the normal person on the street. Fiery stuff. Then he says, however, Adam said he would still vote Tory, adding it hasn't changed anything for me. <laughs> what do you think of that? Well, I think, so there's a, a guy called Frank Luntz, who's an American. Um, I, I can't remember, what, he's a very right wing. I can't remember who he worked for, but he's very talented at this comms research. And he did um, a lot of research into the British public for the Centre for Policy Studies. And um, he found that two thirds of people in this country say that the the opinion that they they share the most when they think of politicians is uh, fuck them all. So this idea of one rule for us, for them, one rule for everybody else, that only really works if you can, con- can convince people that this is a conservative problem rather than a problem with politics. And I think probably what's going on with that person is that he's absorbed the idea that this is a problem with politicians Probably that is what he already thinks. And I would imagine that the sort of media landscape has helped with that because they love to go after Labour. And I think probably, I think Labour has been far too timid uh, in its um, in its responses. And also, you know, Keir Starmer did do some sort of extra work during his time uh, as leader, which, you know, we saw with that, uh, sorry, as an MP, which we saw with that uh, clip of Angela Rayner that, you know, she did an all right job with what she had, but the problem with what she had was is she had a leader who himself was saying, it seemed, was saying, do as I say and not as I do. So I think what the danger here is for all of us, um, and I guess I mean when I say all of us, people who are progressive and want a progressive politics, uh, is that this could easily go the same way that the expenses scandal did which is basically this idea that our leaders are corrupt and um, they're all as bad as each other um, and basically lay the groundwork for a kind of burn-it-down populism that only really seems to benefit people who just don't give a shit about, like, anything, <laughs> like Boris Johnson. So I think that's that's the so sort of danger here. Um, and I think that's what's going on with that guy because people just don't think about things in terms of party politics. Most people, um, they just sort of, you know, they they think about things in terms of their own experiences, the values that they hold, and what little they absorb from the news, because people, generally speaking, don't pay that much attention to the news. And so 
this idea of the Conservatives have done something bad, so therefore I must vote Labour is not really how most people work. So, yeah. Sorry, that's a bit depressing. I mean, Adam, on that, I mean, what do you think? That, what happened with the expenses scandal, basically? I mean, it did, yeah. I think, <clears throat> hurt Labour more because they were the incumbent government at the time, but it did feed the sense of all politicians are the same, uh, which which actually often doesn't help the left because actually if you're on the left, you want politicians to make bold, radical policy proposals. And the, if voters are cynical about all politicians, in a sense, they're more cynical about the politician who makes the biggest promises because they then seem to be, uh, you know, almost the, 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 you know, if you believe they're cynical, uh, duplicitous creatures with their snouts in the trough, uh, then you don't believe them when they say they're going to change your life for the better. So what do you think about that, Adam? And also leading on what, what Ellie just mentioned about Keir Starmer, there has been in the last few days, Alex Nunns, who used to work for Jamie Corbyn, who's an author, um, has uh, been writing about whether or not Jeremy Corbyn, well, the argument is very clear, Jeremy Corbyn stopped Keir Starmer from taking up work um, after the 2017 election. So I'm interested, what's the truth about that? what Labour have said about it. So those two things, do you think it is just going to end up as Ellie said? Yeah, well, I mean, I'd agree with Ellie um, to an extent that there is a, the risk for Labour is that it does become this sort of generalised sort of all politicians are corrupt story. And there has been an attempt, I think, from the government to try and sort of push it in that direction, not highly effectively. There was that story that was briefed um, by the Defence Secretary about a Labour MP and SNP MP, he's getting, getting drunk on a, on a foreign visit. Uh, it's just trying to feed into this whole picture of, you know, all, all politicians are, b- are badly behaved. And, you know, and as you say, that doesn't necessarily help the Labour Party. I think the difference between this and the expenses uh, scandal is that this is much more heavily concentrated in the Conservative Party, as you said earlier. Um, a quarter of Conservative MPs have got second jobs. Only three Labour MPs have got have got second jobs. And also it, it di- is directly tied to Boris Johnson personally. A lot of these stories we saw about the Jennifer Arcuri story uh, earlier, but uh, also the Electoral Commission looking into his redecoration of the uh, Down Street flat. So it does go directly to him personally. And the sort of opportunity for Labour, there is a risk for them, definitely, I think, along the lines Ellie set out. But I think the, the opportunity for them is to to get a hearing for these, for, for basically negative stories about the government, which often don't get a place in the rest whatsoever. I mean, my, my previous uh, employer insider, uh, one of my colleagues, Henry Dyer, brilliant young journalist, basically his entire beat was writing these kinds of stories about second jobs and, and conflicts of interests of MPs. And he did some great work, but very often he would he would come out with a story and it just wouldn't get any pick up in the rest of the press because there just wasn't an interest in covering those kind of negative stories about the government. And that does seem to have changed in, in the last few weeks, particularly with the Daily Mail going so heavily against the government and concentrating their, their attacks on the government rather than MPs in general. So I think there is an opportunity there for Labour. But you do need somebody at the front who has got clear convictions and principles on these matters. And I think, you know, some of the, the some of the comments from Keir Starmer and his, his involvement, uh, his, his discussions about a second job of Mishkon de Ria when he was in the shadow cabinet, that has sort of muddied the water somewhat. And I don't think Labour's response has been particularly great on that. Um, as you say, there was that the, the claim from people around Corbyn that uh, Corbyn personally intervened to stop Keir Starmer from uh, from taking that job. Um, Keir Starmer's office have belatedly they took some while to respond to the story, but they belatedly denied that. Um, Alex Nuns has come up with has published some some emails and WhatsApp exchanges throwing doubt on that on that denial. I mean. Where I, I don't know the, the, the truth of, of exactly the, the timeline of events, but it undoubtedly is the case that ultimately, whether or not Corbyn told him not to take the job or he, he or came, came to his own decision or somewhere in between, the fact is he didn't take that job. So the, the sort of risk to him isn't in the same level as it is for the government, particularly when you have members of the existing cabinet uh, splashed across the, the front pages over the last few days. I mean, just, you know, talking about Labour towards the end of this, we're about to talk about COP26 for the next guest, but um, just on that, um, Elliot, I mean, I suppose, I wonder if, well, there's a few dangers really, isn't there? Which is that the polling dip for the Tories is because they're in the midst of a terrible, terrible scandal, a huge corruption scandal. And if, I have to say, if the Tories aren't losing support at a time like this, we might, we might as well just all give up and go home. Uh, that's what you'd expect. 
but that isn't matched by a rush of positive approval in terms of the Labour Party. Keir Starmer's approval ratings are bad. They are in the negative. They're not as bad as Boris Johnson's now. For a while, they were. They were worse than Boris Johnson for a while. Um, as things stand, Boris Johnson's ratings have taken a hit. So Keir Starmer is now less unpopular, but is very unpopular. That's what the polling says. Just be honest about it. Um, so I suppose, do you think the danger is, basically, we'll go through this and then the Tories will just recoup their support? Or, I mean, is the vaccine honeymoon fading for example so actually maybe it's not just this maybe it is you know the vaccine at uh, the cost of living crisis i mean just quickly on that interesting uh polling uh which suggests if i bring it up uh have i got it here let's have a look there was polling which suggests basically that people are economically anxious and they think their living standards are going to take a hit over the coming months that's not normally good for the government so what do you think about that a lot of this corruption stuff doesn't hit people's everyday lives. Cost of living does. That could hit the government. What do you think? And that's an opportunity for Labour, Ellie. Um, I think, yeah, the this, this sort of the scandals, the kind of the reasons not to vote this government back in are obviously, they are piling high. But I do believe that people will never sort of flock to Labour in the numbers that they need to in order for us to have a Labour-led government, because Labour might even have to go into coalition with the SNP, um, even if they do end up winning loads of seats. Um, they will never, There will never be a Labour-led government, I don't think, unless they can actually give people a reason to vote for them, um, rather than just hope that the Tories sort of default on the election. So... And I think part of that is because uh, at, we rely on a voter group that is less, like less keen on voting. Less, they're not as frequent a voter as like the the conservatives rely on property owning pensioners so with social conservative values. Like that's their base, and that base will turn out for them. They vote in high numbers. We need um, people who are. Um, uh, who earn less, who work long hours, who are younger. And those are groups that historically don't turn out um, unless you give them a reason to. So I think that that is the, pro the, ultimately, I just don't see any of it being solved until Labour can actually explain why people should vote for them. And I think one thing I've been feeling quite despairing about is that um, Labour does have a lot of really great policies. So they want to spend 28 billion a year on um, like cl fixing climate change, which would make us a world leader in climate change. So NEF think tank says that we need 30 billion a year. So they're only a couple of billion short. I don't know why they chose to go 2 billion lower, but whatever, it's, it's like pretty close, which is huge, which is really important, really great. So there actually are great things that they're doing, but just it's just not coming together into this vision of like why to vote for them. Um, you know, whereas like conversely, the Tories in especially in 2019 had nothing. They had no reason to vote for them, but they managed to like tap into something. They managed to create something, and I think it's that that's Labour struggling with. And there's been points in this in this last couple of years where I've thought about if I wasn't on the left, if I wasn't involved in politics for a living, if I wasn't, I am a member of the party. If I wasn't a member of the party. Would I vote Labour? And I actually think that I would either vote Tory or not vote because it, at times it has felt like there is only one political party in this country because the government, it's like a, a combination of the government being so domineering because they're such a campaigning heavy government versus like the total absence of the Labour Party that it was actually hard to sort of to think that they're act you're actually choosing between two parties. It kind of felt like choosing the government or just opting out. And I think what's happened during this scandal is that Labour have gone a bit emboldened. Like, it is really good to see them use words like corruption. Um, so they have sort of softly, softly kind of come out a little bit and they are attacking. And, and to be fair to them, they have been going on the sleaze angle for a while. So they've, maybe they've been feeling a bit confident that finally the thing that they've been talking about is actually starting to come to fruition. Um, so I think they have actually managed to kind of demonstrate, look, we're here and we have a different way of doing things. But I think that they just need to go harder and for longer on that, because um, you know, otherwise I do think that th there's a danger of things 
slipping back to the way they were because you know, I know that you remember after the 2019 election, there was a lot of like, well, you know, we all thought that we were just going to be sort of staring down the barrel of like conservative hegemony for the next four years. And and I'm not saying that's changed, but none of us could have anticipated that, like, as you wrote in your book, Owen, that just like a few weeks later, that there would there would be the beginnings of a global pandemic. You know what I mean? So like events are going to happen af- after mm. this point. And, you know, it's not just going to be the case that this scandal is going to go away and then the polls are going to stay the same. There's going to be big events coming up in the next couple of years that uh, will be opportunities for the Conservatives to, like, take back the narrative. Mm. And so that's why I say, like, it's the um, keeping up the heat and, and, like, turning up the heat even on the Conservatives and, like, hammering away at it, but also saying this is... This is what Britain would look like if we ran the country. Mm. Um, because I think unless they can do that consistently, then then like things will may just slip back or or, or this will be overtaken by another story mm. where the Conservatives may well end up sort of dominating mm. the narrative once again. Because they are better at doing that, unfortunately. I've mentioned the polling before, just bring up the polling, which, which just showed economic predictions for the next year, asking people, they think... Uh, 90% think the amount you pay on monthly bills and other uh, regular outgoings will go up. 82% think the rate of inflation will go up. 77% think the taxes you pay will go up. 70% think mortgage interest rates will go up. So people are very pessimistic about their future prospects. So that might have an impact. Just quickly, as we've overrun, I need to bring in next brilliant guest shortly, Kimi Naidu, to talk about COP26. Before I just quickly do that, Adam, do you think actually, in a way, if you were Tory MP and being very, quite cynical about it, you could go... Well, we'll take a hit. We'll go. We might have bad polling for a little while. That will make Labour MPs and Charlie Ministers, who I'm just going to be honest, think Keir Starmer is a dud. They don't think he's going to form a government. They just don't. People, if you talk to Labour MPs privately, generally very pessimistic and cynical about his uh, leadership, even if they're not publicly so. He's had a very easy ride from his Labour MPs publicly compared to any other leader since Tony Blair. But I mean, it, it, you know, this will actually help keep him in place. Uh, and 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 makes it more likely he'll lead lead Labour into the next election. And no leader has ever won an election with the polling that Labour currently has. Yes, I mean, well, if you talk to Conservative MPs, it's certainly the case that they are not worried about the prospect of Keir Starmer leading Labour Party to a landslide victory against them. They're not they're not scared of Keir Starmer. They don't. He's not highly rated among Conservative MPs or among people around Boris Johnson in Downing Street. Um, I mean, I think overall they probably rated him higher than they, they did Jeremy Corbyn, but they they're not they're not frightened of the prospect of him winning a next general election. So I think overall Conservative MPs are not terrified of their electoral prospects, but they are worried about the 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 abuse and the the the, re- the sort of reaction they're getting from this current scandal. And a lot of them are worried that potentially they're going to be forced to lose their second jobs and it can hurt their own income. Um, and there is a constituency within the Conservative Party of former ministers or ministers that whose careers have not flourished under mm-hmm. Boris Johnson, who are quite dangerous to, to his future and have no nothing really um, to to gain, nothing really to lose from from trying to topple Boris Johnson. People like Gavin Williamson, for instance, who the, the Sunday Mirror reports today is leading a lot of these attempts to sort of unseat Boris Johnson. So I think. No, they're not particularly worried about Labour at the moment. That could change if the polls massively shift towards Labour. You know, it could happen. But I think Boris Johnson faces problems both within his party. The problems he faces within his party are actually probably greater than the problems he faces from the opposition. Adam and Ellie, you've both been absolutely fantastic. We covered a huge amount of ground there, but that was absolutely brilliant. Uh, do you follow them both on Twitter? Oh, Adam Bienkov also has a Substack, so look up Adam Bienkov's Substack because he and support him there because the work he does, the journalism he does, is really top rate. And also, do check out Class, the think tank, the work they're doing. Classonline.org.uk, I think, isn't it? Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've got check a project out. coming out soon that is going to give you a tool that you can put your details about your working life in and it will tell you how insecure your working life is and you know how precarious it is compared to the wider economy and it will tell you the rights that you're missing at work and how you and like basically how you could get those rights back so please when it comes up please share that with your friends 
I will be doing that. That's absolutely, that's great. Brilliant. All right. Cheers, both of you. Thank you so, so much. Have a great Sunday. I will speak to you both soon. Bye. Lots of love. Um, Right, I should go on quickly to the next guest because we have overrun. We did start late, so huge apologies. So I'm now going to bring in the fantastic Yumi Naidu, who is the former International Executive Director of Greenpeace International and Secretary General of Amnesty International. Kimi, so, so sorry we overwrapped. We started late for technical reasons, but it's great to see you. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you okay. I, I No problems about that. Uh, great. I, I'm sitting here having listened to your previous discussion. Uh, i got to say that was a pretty depressing discussion to, to listen to. Uh, and now we're going to be cheered up by talking about... No, 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 even a more depressing conversation, but let's go. Well, what I was going to do was start, just to see your reaction to this. Uh, my colleague at The Guardian, who you know, George Monbio, and everyone I'm sure will be familiar with his his work, he just did a quick reaction uh, to COP26. So I'm, I'm going to play this video and see what, what, you, what you think as well. So we're coming almost to the end of the climate summit here in Glasgow, and what a total fiasco it is. I mean, this, this really is getting very close to the last possible chance. And instead of the sweeping change which we need, like a decision to leave all fossil fuels in the ground by 2030, no more burning at all of fossil fuel by then, that's the scale things we need not even on the table not a prospect not even an idea that these should be discussed and instead they're giving us this pathetic limp rag of a document demonstrating that they are here not to protect life on earth but to protect the fossil fuel industry from challenge you should celebrate yourself every day but some days you should celebrate with jewelry Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. So we're coming. So oh, my brilliant colleague there, George Monbio from The Guardian. What do you think? Is that is that a fair summary? That's an absolutely accurate summary. Uh, I couldn't put it better myself. In fact, uh, another way that somebody has put it, which I think is also really helpful, is uh, that the COP26 outcomes are... Uh, it's not an issue of it being good, but could have been better... Is that they are very bad, but they, they could have been worse. Owen, I don't know whether I've lost you. No, you're still there. You're still yeah. there. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, so, so, you know, basically, you know, uh, it, it's it's a repeat of what we've had to deal with at many of these COPs. I mean, in, even if you go back to Copenhagen, from 2009, we were asking for a fab deal. Not a fabulous deal, but a fair, ambitious, and binding deal. And in 2009 in Copenhagen, we got a flab deal, FLAB, full of loopholes and bull. And I think your viewers can complete the rest that follows after bull. Um, and uh, and and so essentially what you have here is a complete betrayal of what the science is saying we need to do. Right. So this deal does not offer the transformative changes that the science is pleading and urging us to do. And I think, you know, the reason for that is pretty obvious in a way. Uh, Let me just say that, you know, the largest delegation at the COP was the fossil fuel industry. It actually was twice the size of the UK government uh, delegation with about 503 lobbyists. Just to put it in context, the eight most vulnerable countries in the world altogether had 479 delegates. Uh, I mean, having that kind of dominance of the fossil fuel industry, they, they 
fingerprints are all over the document that has come out. Uh, you know, the absurdity of it should be clear. It's like if Alcoholics Anonymous was having a global conference and the largest delegation to the conference was the alcohol industry. That's as how absurd um, this COP has been. And uh, clearly it's been a betrayal of our children and their children's future. What do you say to those who say this was, again, in terms of the, the global north, the role of the global north at the expense of the rest of humanity, and this was, again, the global north protecting their interests over those of the world as a whole? What would you say to that? I would say that's accurate, and I would say it's not surprising that we would see this happen because, I mean, the COVID was a good kind of uh, moment to expose this uh, approach in a very kind of obvious way. I mean, the vaccine apartheid approach we've seen on the part of the most wealthiest and dominant nations uh, is what we also see with climate in the sense that we've got a climate apartheid situation in the sense that those countries that historically contributed the most emissions and built the economies on dirty energy um, are not the ones that are paying the most most uh, the first and most brutal price. It is people of color in uh, many parts of the global south. And and just as it's short-sighted for rich countries to take a vaccine apartheid approach, it's also short-sighted to take a climate apartheid approach in the sense that if you don't... Uh, I, I mean, right now, only 5% of people in Africa, for example, have received vaccines, right? So you're leaving Africa with... A possibility of becoming a variant factory which eventually potentially would generate variants that would uh, not be treatable with the current crop of vaccines similarly with climate yes it's true that people in poor countries that contributed the least to the problem are, are suffering now and will suffer more but ultimately rich countries are not going to be immune to suffering as the events in the united states australia and including in belgium and germany recently have shown lives will be lost and lives will be lost at scale. So it's short-sighted. And, and at the end of the day, it's just basically a confirmation that too many of our governments around the world are not simply influenced heavily by the fossil fuel industry. I think it's not an overstatement to say that they are pretty much owned by the fossil fuel industry. And just in terms of some of the Michael Jacobs, who is a professor of political economy at the University of Sheffield, has done this, a thread of the lowlights. And he says, for example, the agreement instructs countries to come back in 2022 with strengthened emissions reductions commitments. There'd been hopes that would happen here, but that, that hasn't proved possible. Almost all major countries had already announced their uh, nationally determined contributions before COP26. Uh, they were not able to revise them here. Uh, but they have acknowledged that collectively they're not good enough. They will lead to 2.4 centigrade above pre-industrial uh, temperature rises. Um, and the, the, the aim originally was 1.5. 2.7 is uh, 2.4 is catastrophic in terms of, of course, the consequences for, for humanity. Uh, on finance, uh, developing countries want one demand but not others. The agreement requires rich countries to at least double funds for adaption, i.e. coping with present climate change. What, where do we go from here? I mean, in terms of, you know, as we, we are running out of time, this is an existential threat facing humanity, uh, extreme weather events, droughts, famines, uh, ecosystem destabilization, much of the world being rendered inhospitable for human life and civilization. It's not great. Where do we go from here? Where, where do you see the next steps for the climate justice movement? Um, I think there are a whole range of uh, bold kind of innovations that need to uh, be looked at. We need to, in the climate movement, also recognize what Albert Einstein once said, which is the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting to get different results. But if you can just pardon me, Owen, before I come to what I think needs to change, let me just say that, you know, these degrees of 1.5 and 2.4, which is what we're heading towards based on what's on the table right now, uh, if you just pardon me to just humanize it a bit, right? So in 2015, people in the Pacific were chanting 1.5 to stay alive. That was in like July of, of, of 2015, 1.5 to stay alive, because that is what is at stake. If we don't keep it below 1.5, 
And by the way, the UK government knows it, Europe knows it, the US knows it, all the dom China knows it, India knows it, all the dominant countries in the G20 know it. And it would appear that they have made a calculated decision to say that those people are finished, right? We're not going to save them goodbye, you know, tough luck. And now what people in the Pacific anyway are uh, chanting is 1.5, we might survive. Because bear in mind, we are already from the start of the industrial period till now, we are already at 1.1 and fast getting to 1.2. Think about it. If at 1.1, we're already experiencing so much extreme weather events um, at 1.1, the science tells us it'll get worse as we get closer to 1.5. But how worse it'll get is unclear, right? So, uh, so, 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 so there's a lot at stake with regard to this, these degrees. They're not just some sort of thing that the science sucked out. People are suffering now at 1.1, and some nations will not make it if, even if we, get, if we keep it to 1.5 or will suffer tremendously. So let's know that anything above 1.5 is saying we are writing off uh, countries because, uh, and the only reason those of us in the global south can see that it's so easy to do that is because people of color live there and there are no resources that the dominant nations of the world needs. In terms of the money, yes, they've been talking about getting closer to the 100 million and so on in the Green Climate Fund. But please remind ourselves that the, this commitment was made in 2009, that by 2020, these resources will be there to help with adaptation, to make sure that poor countries don't follow the same route that rich countries follow to build their economies. Now, for those of us in the climate movement, we have, uh, this has to be also a sort of a moment of deep reflection. And I, I want to suggest some, some of the things that need to change. One is, I think that the discourse and the narratives, even though it's changing in a positive direction, it still needs to be much more human-centric than it's been, mm -hmm. right? Uh, I, I think Historically, Western environmentalism, for example, uh, you know, did not, was uncomfortable with even using the term climate justice. They were uncomfortable with uh, uh, making the linkage between um, equity and uh, sustainability. And that needs to be intensively, it has to be about water, about food, about soil, about habitat, and so on. Uh, and, and, to be fair, and, and by the way, I've made all of these mistakes myself, so it's not being critical to anybody else other than a self-critical comment. Uh, you know, climate activism is most difficult because the nature of it is very complicated. You know, if you say there are more typhoons or more hurricanes, then there'll always be somebody who would say, well, we've already, always had hurricanes and typhoons. But, you know, we need to be able to show that the intensity, the frequency, the scale of it is just way off the charts, right? Uh, so the second thing is we have to be able to communicate in a less jargonistic and less uh, ritualistic way. One of the pieces of work that I'm working on right now with, uh, 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 for example, with Olafur Eliasson, the artist based in Berlin uh, from Iceland, who's brilliant, as many of your viewers will know, is um, to bring the world of arts and culture closer together so that we can communicate in a more human-centric way. Then we also have to recognize that given the way that the fossil fuel industry has dominated and have held back progress and have lied and so on, I think right now there's no question that um, every fossil fuel infrastructure that exists in the world is a legitimate target for peaceful civil disobedience. And I think that unless we find the right balance between uh, civil disobedience on the one hand but also building bridges with those that disagree with us on the other. And, and let me just stop there and, 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 and make this point. You know, activism cannot be simply kind of consolidating and organizing the people that agree with you already. If that is our definition of activism, then we are being lazy. If activism does not consciously say that our task has to be to win over the people that are not with us, people who have been manipulated, lied to, misled, given 
false information and so on. So in that sense, and I know some of your listeners might not like what I'm about to say, we have to figure out how do we love the people who voted for Brexit and Trump and so on and build a narrative bridge, build a dialogue with them to actually get them to move to where we are. We cannot write off such significant numbers of people. And I think uh, the, the challenge here is how do you deal with the contradiction? How do you deal with the one end of needing to intensify civil disobedience, but on the other hand, also consciously trying to win people whose own interests, clearly their children's interests are as much at stake as the children of people who are progressive. And unless we can convince them to make that change, I don't think we will have the kind of scale of of, of systemic change that we need to happen in a very tight um, timescale where we have a reality that we're living on the mo- in the most consequential decade in humanity's history. I mean, ju- just just lastly, because this has been quite a depressing episode, partly because we have to just discuss the objective material we have. Uh, that's that's where we're at, I'm afraid, folks. Is there any what grounds for optimism do you have? Where do you where in in and this is an existential threat facing our species, so it's pretty bleak. But where where are the where where do you see some optimism for those of us who want drastic yeah. action to deal with the emergency? So I think um, you know after the global financial crisis, for example, those with power responded with system recovery, system protection, system maintenance. But what was needed then and what is urgently needed now is an approach of system innovation, system redesign, and system transformation. I've been an activist for more than four decades, since you know, 15 years old in the anti-apartheid movement. I can safely say to you that I do not remember a moment where the possibility and the appetite for substantive structural and systemic change, which is what is critically needed right now. We need a fundamental change to our economy, to our energy system, and so on. I think that the optimism, or or, or not the optimism, the commitment to pushing for those changes is much higher than I have ever seen. When even the Financial Times, a bastion of the capitalist press, talks about a post-capitalist future, you need to see that there are things moving in our favor. And the thing that gives me hope is the uh, energy and the capability and the creativity of young people who have, in the last couple of years, entered the struggle in with so much of gusto. They've been around for a while, but they've, they've captured it. And they are saying to themselves and to the world, we refuse to accept that young people are leaders of tomorrow, as is often said, and they are seeking to take leadership right now. And I think that uh, we are not that far away from a tipping point of public opinion moving in a direction where political leaders will not be able to act with the level of cognitive dissonance and denial about how close to the climate cliff we are. So I say to young people, to the allies who are older, like myself, uh, and so on, is to say, uh, yes, let's take this weekend to mourn that we didn't achieve what we achieved, but come Monday morning, we roll up our sleeves again and we intensify our resistance. We ask ourselves what we need to do differently, what we need to stop doing, what do we need to start doing, what do we continue doing, but do it in a different way. But uh, there's no uh, benefit in, in you know, embracing a, a pessimistic mood. And I'll just end by saying that we must remind ourselves that the pessimism of our analysis can best be overcome by the optimism of our creativity and our action. And that's what, come Monday, I would urge all of us, we are back in the front lines, we're back pushing to actually win a fight that we don't have an option but to win. As Antonio Gramsci put it, uh, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. Um, it's been a huge honour to have your insights and your your wisdom. Um, it was, it was this is the sort of analysis we need to grab people by the collars and just spell out the grim uh facts that we face not least as western leaders celebrate the cop 26 deal and i'm afraid to say a lot of media senior media figures uh have been lauding this document as a uh as a triumph and having the facts to address that balance is extremely important not least for those of us who want to uh build pressure on western leaders to actually tackle this existential threat so you've really really set that up very very clearly so we really really appreciate it um and everyone please do follow uh 
your everyone make sure you follow uh kumi's work um on Insta- on twitter for example uh where you've been sharing a lot of your speeches your contributions uh, around cop 26 but thank you so much honestly it was a real real pleasure thank you very much Owen. take care um well as i've said a lot of that is depressing but again we have to deal with the facts as we as we have it uh and you know in in both those topics uh there is some cause for optimism let me try and end on an optimistic note uh in that when we're talking of course about the scandals overwhelming the tories and i'm afraid the failures of the labor leadership to offer an inspiring alternative uh amidst that crisis um and when we look at the climate emergency and the failure of elites to tackle it the one common theme that gives me optimism is younger people people significantly younger than myself i'm a geriatric millennial as i keep uh, highlighting on this show uh but i do think younger people involved in political struggle um whether it be climate justice whether it be uh for example black lives matter lgbtq rights economic justice younger people who have suffered the brunt of course of the financial crash the attempt which was called austerity to uh make the majority pay for that financial crash rather than the elites who caused it uh the pandemic again the social and economic dislocation that younger people have faced and of course the climate emergency <clears throat> it will be today's young who suffer the worst brunt but younger people are showing leadership uh on so many different issues um and frankly making up for the terrible failures of generations older than them uh that does give me a lot of hope um just finally it's remembrance sunday uh so i think it should i remember sunday we all think of often personal uh connections to uh the conflicts of the past uh i think of my granddad who was born in 1895 bizarrely enough and died in 1951 at sea he was in the merchant navy uh which had the second worst attrition uh after the ref in world war ii kept of course britain from being starved to death during world war ii he was bombed twice his boat was sank twice at sea i've got pictures of him uh, on an open boat but as well as of course of those uh who have made terrible uh sacrifices during world war ii in the, in the struggle against nazism we should remember looking back for example at world war one the brilliant poems of the likes of wilfred owen the true horror of war um, and in that war when working class men across europe were sent to kill each other in a war which then shaped and determined many of the horrors of the 20 of the 20th century and we still live in the shadow of the first world war in some ways and the consequences of world war one uh that we remember those who suffer because of continued wars including wars which our own governments are directly complicit in and i think of yemen in the moment which is the worst humanitarian crisis on earth bombed by a saudi-led coalition armed to the teeth by our own government and we remember all of those because uh it is important to remember the struggle and sacrifice of people who did die in what was a just war against nazism as well as we remember those who were sent to die in terrible and just wars uh, and that isn't to belittle or undermine their suffering far from it is to remember it and put it in its proper context and to remember those brown and black people across the world who are killed often by western led violence and on a day like this we shouldn't think that violence of course has borders it it doesn't we have to remember all of those victims including those who die in wars which can can be stopped war is not something to glorify it's something to resist and we learn from our history uh by not glorifying that violence but by by remembering its true horror the true horror of war war is hell and so on anyway we're going to end on that note uh, we do have a documentary coming out tomorrow so do check it out i think it'll go live in the afternoon really proud of this one it's as i said it's about property developers in south london waging warm working class communities it really shows again how working class communities have been told over the years that they're real enemies are migrants and refugees when actually it's you can see these big vested interests who are destroying these communities in this case in in nine elms in south london and it it's focusing on one community but it has lessons of course for the country as a whole 
uh, and how housing uh, has been financialized and commodified. And it's not about people's needs, uh, but it's uh, about property speculation and what that means for people's everyday lives, their insecurity, inability to set down roots. We're very proud of it, as I said. So do check it out when it comes out. And that was made possible by your support on patreon.com forward slash Owen Jones 84. A team on union wages makes those films, including our Tory conference video, our Labour conference video, the videos we've done across the country over the last few months, the documentaries about COVID. You all made that possible. Uh, so thank you. Um, do, as I've said, press like, do subscribe. Uh, we've got the documentary and interviews coming up next week and we are back. I am going to Portugal next weekend, but we'll make it work. I'll just be live from the Portuguese countryside. It's only the second time I've been abroad in about two and a half years, so I'm very excited about that. Um, but that's all for me. Hope you're all doing very well this Sunday. Thanks to our fantastic guests. Lots of love, everyone, and I will see you soon. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you found that informative, educational, uh, interesting, and I certainly did. Uh, do support us on Patreon to keep the show on the road, uh, forward slash Jones 84 Leave us some stars, that'd be nice. Spread the word. And I look forward to speaking to you soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.